0: May we have your attention, please? In a previous episode of our podcast, we talked about the Potter's Bar accident of 2002. It was an accident caused by a failure of point work just outside the station and led to the loss of seven lives. A couple of years before, another asset-related accident occurred at Hatfield. With me again to talk about that accident and what we must learn from it is Greg Morse. Greg, welcome back to the RSSB podcast. Let's get straight into the detail. Could you tell us what happened at Hatfield?
1: Thanks, Ant. Yes, this accident occurred on the 17th of October 2000, not long into the new millennium. That morning, train 1 Delta 3-8, the 1210 Kings Cross Leeds, was making good time after a right-time departure from the capital. By 1223, it was rounding the Wellham curve at about 115 miles an hour. After passing under the Oxley Avenue overbridge, the driver and the trainee sitting at the controls noticed that the brake pipe pressure had fallen to zero, initiating a full brake application. What on earth had happened? Well, the reason soon became apparent. Derailment. One carriage, the buffet car, had struck and brought down an OLE stanchion. The buffet car then overturned and carried on to strike two masts more, the second of which penetrated the vehicle from roof to floor. It was here that the four fatalities occurred. Over 70 people were also injured, four of them seriously, including two members of staff. 21 investigators were eventually involved, including specialists in rail and general engineering. They found that the high rail of the canted curve at Wellham had broken into over 300 pieces. Beyond this, the rail was intact, though displaced, for about 44 metres, though there was a further fragmented length of 54 metres beyond that. The health and safety executive closed the East Coast Main Line for three weeks to undertake what it called a forensic fingertip search. But what had already been learned, quite quickly, sparked concern within RailTrack about the rail condition elsewhere on the network, sparked too the blanket imposition of a huge number of speed restrictions, many for 20 miles an hour. Sir Alistair Morton, chairman of the Strategic Rail Authority back then, was moved to declare the whole thing an institutional nervous breakdown.
0: Thank you, Greg, for describing the incident. Would you tell us a little bit more now about the reasons for the rail break?
1: Track suffers more when trains have wheels with flat sections, and when there's poor jointing and poor packing under the rail. This heightens fatigue, which can lead to cracks or fractures if not detected. In some cases, cracks develop deep and downward in a way that weakens the rail. Those near the gauge corner became known as GCC, or gauge corner cracks. GCC had first been noticed in the early days of diesel traction, when heavily laden wheel sets revolving at higher speeds were found to flake the rail heads. Instances were few at first, but started to become more frequent on the West Coast mainline in the 80s, partly as a result of the high-attractive effort exerted by electric locomotives. And this led to a series of reports in the 90s, started by BR and taken forward by RailTrack, which showed GCC to be playing an increasing role in broken rail incidents. The higher rail on super-elevated curves was the most vulnerable, due to the higher contact stresses at the wheel-rail interface there. Although Hatfield seemed to come out of nowhere, the down fast at Wellham already fitted the Canton curve profile. The high attractive effort and higher speed parts of the equation joined when electrification came to the East Coast Main Line in the late 80s.
0: Thank you, Greg. Can you now go into what were found to be the causes behind the accident?
1: Absolutely. As is so often the case with accidents like Hatfield, there were a number of errors and omissions policies that lined up to create the conditions for it. First, it was a question of rail inspection. There were, and are, two ways to check the integrity of a rail, by eye and by ultrasonic testing. The latter took off in about 1970 when handheld equipment was augmented by a two-car diesel multiple unit fitted out to do the same job at 20 miles an hour. By the end of the last century, it had become a vital tool in the battle against broken rails. At Hatfield, that battle was lost, though the fight was never going to be easy, as gauge corner cracking could be very hard to detect. In some respects, it was similar to an internal kidney-shaped fatigue crack, known as a Tarsh-Oval defect. However, GCC differed from one of those, in that the latter could be picked up by regular ultrasonic testing techniques, whereas the former could propagate at a different angle, allowing it therefore to evade the probe. And to be very brief about all the detail that you can imagine lies behind that situation, the new ultrasonic testing procedures that could have detected the fault at Hatfield were not being made frequently enough. Elsewhere on the network, GCC had been appearing in the causal chains of a growing number of broken rail incidents, and to be fair, Railtrack was far from oblivious. Back in November 1999, in fact, it had told its contractor to list the places where GCC was present on high-speed, high canted track. That list, delivered in December, identified several priority sites, and some of the worst were in the Hatfield and Wellham area, and were deemed to require renewal within a month. A temporary speed restriction should have been imposed at this point to ease pressure on the rail. But it wasn't. And by the end of March 2000, however, the condition of that rail had deteriorated enough for replacement to be brought forward to the third week in April, but alas, that rail was not delivered until April the 28th after three failed attempts to do so. Overrunning work at Hatfield caused more delay, pushing the work back until a new application was made for various dates, up to January the 28th 2001. Too late, of
0: course, as it turned out. Thank you, Greg. From our 21st century perspective, this looks like so much incompetence or misfortune. But was it as simple as that?
1: Yes and no is, I suppose, the most unsatisfactory answer I can give. Partly the problems have been motivated by concerns about delays, which drained money away from rail tracking performance costs. On October the 9th, eight days before the Hatfield accident, the company had reported that in the first half of 2000-2001, delay minutes had risen 10% year on year. Then we come, though, to track patrols. When interviewed, patrollers said they inspected two lines of the four-track railway here in each session, but their reports indicated that all four lines were being looked at during the one session, which, of course, they were. And it was a question of resourcing. At privatisation, Railtrack and its contractors have been obliged to cut costs by 3%. This saw patrol teams of four or six reduced to just two, a patroller and a single lookout. With just one lookout at Wellham, where trains can pass at 100 miles an hour or more, it was far too dangerous to do anything other than check the curve from the CESS, that's the pit at the side of the rail, if you like. If it was a question of resourcing, though, it was also a question of training. The fact that none of the patrollers' reports referred to anything to do with gauge corner cracking or any other kind of rolling contact fatigue was because they hadn't been properly trained to identify it. More worryingly, the last patroller to inspect the Wellham Green curve before the accident told Railway Safety's investigators that he'd never been trained to recognise gauge corner cracking or understand the risks that it brought with it, so he lacked the the complete picture. On top of this, the track walk inspections undertaken by management were deficient. And they were also infrequent. Evidence showed that between May 1997 and October 2000, they were well below the mandated two monthly intervals. There was also a culture of inspecting on the basis of visual examination alone. Behind this were failures in the management of defects and a failure to provide a safe system of work to allow staff to carry out effective inspections. Such difficulties were not communicated to management, on top of which resource shortages and staff turnover resulted in the absence of knowledgeable and experienced staff. In interview, RailTracks London Northeastern Compliance and Engineering Manager said he was unable to follow a discussion of track work at Hitchin because he didn't understand it. In interview, the Zone Quality Standards Manager said he had neither knowledge of railway engineering nor railway safety. And there's a, a place for a dramatic pause if ever there was one at.
0: Indeed, having no knowledge of railways, if you're involved in railway safety, does seem somewhat concerning. But RSSB now monitors trends very extensively. What were the statistics saying at the time of the Hatfield? incident.
1: Broken rails have been on the up since privatisation. The Health and Safety Executive's Railway Safety Statistics Bulletin had reported a 21% rise from about 755 in 1997-98 to 937 in 98-99. Tom Winder, who became the rail regulator in July 99, when it was embodied in, in one person, if you like, was concerned that the company was breaching its network licensing conditions. He wrote to RailTrack on August the 12th, demanding more clarity on what it deemed acceptable. RailTrack Safety and Standards Directorate Audit Report for 99 showed that part of the problem may have been the new project destiny strategy. Devised by management consultants McKinsey, this focused on the idea that replacing assets only when necessary and not fixed time intervals was the best solution. To do that successfully, you need excellent knowledge of your asset condition. RailTrack had no such thing. As the audit report said, the just-in-time approach led to major shifts from track renewals to track maintenance. Part of the problem had been that within RailTrack, there was no one system that allowed the company to view the total number and types of defects affecting the track at any one time. RailTrack's asset database was incomplete and inaccurate, which meant they had little idea about what assets they had, their condition, and expected life expiry. Instead, they relied on information from contractors, all of whom used different systems. Part of the problem, too, was the depression of the professional engineering role within RailTrack HQ and the London Northeastern zone levels. I alluded to that just now, but it wasn't just the one zone, of course. It was, in fact, an early policy of RailTrack to get rid of anyone with engineering experience, in the belief that outsourcing was best. This left RailTrack's engineering seem
0: somewhat thin. Very thin indeed, Greg. But in the 20 years since the Hatfield accident, how have we progressed?
1: The bitter irony about Hatfield is that the route to improvement had already been set, for the Transport Technology Centre had already been commissioned to investigate broken rails and rail tracks management of them. The report was published that November, one month after the accident. It, and of course Hatfield itself, led to the establishment of a task force to research metallurgy, wheel-rail interaction, brakes, suspension, and ultrasonic rail floor detection, the fruits of which were born in subsequent years. And of course, when RSSB came along, we were able to set up systems interface committees, basically getting the right people around the right tables at the right time. One of these six deals with the vehicle track interface, which includes rolling contact fatigue and adhesion, issues that were particularly relevant to Hatfield. This process and the research it spawned meant that things did get better. Thanks to Hatfield, in fact, the industry now has a much better understanding of rail failure modes and how to manage them more effectively. Technology too has improved, plain line pattern recognition and eddy current testing, for example, allowing a much more accurate picture of rail condition to be captured. Thanks to these measures and more, broken rails have fallen from a 40-year average of 750 a year between 1970 and 2010 to an eight-year average of around 150 over the last decade. Yet despite attention turning to the digital railway and the vagaries of software integrity, quite rightly, trains do still run on rails. Bolt this to the fact that the demographic of rail management is getting ever younger, and it's clear that the lessons of Hatfield will need to be carried forward for some years to come.
0: Thank you very much, Greg, for taking us all the way through that As you say, trains still run on rails, regardless of the increasing roles played by software and other digital systems, and as newer, younger people come into the industry, it's going to be important that we retain and maintain our corporate memory, the lessons learned from incidents such as those at Clapham Junction, Potter's Bar, Hatfield, and others. I must thank you again, this time for leading us into a new series of podcasts that will be starting in August about the many aspects of asset integrity and how best to manage it. And thank you all for listening. As I said, more to come on asset integrity and a wide range of other topics in the coming months. So, until the next time, stay safe.